song that we generally sing at invitation time, and often we don't sing the words of the invitation song. We do occasionally, but generally we don't. But I was telling my wife just recently, uh, I sing, I sing, I like to sing invitation songs when I'm by myself, just as I am, have thine own way, softly and tenderly, uh, because they're just, I think that, but we don't sing them as congregations, but they have a powerful message, even as a congregational song, so I enjoy the song as well. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, if you'd be finding that in your Bible this evening. Revelation chapter 2, and very familiar passage of scripture, but I want to use it because it's, um, it really speaks to the subject that I want to deal with tonight, having to do with churches, and really I want to speak on the subject of the preservation of churches. You know, we have been this year as a part of our theme, our annual theme of stand, you know, the, one of the reasons we... Uh, Plan that theme is just to emphasize throughout this year the importance of knowing what you believe and standing for what you believe. And so on Sunday nights, as the majority of you would know, we've been teaching doctrinal lessons and giving great attention to the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the scriptures, why we use the Bible that we use, devoted weeks to that subject, the doctrine of God and, you know, proper theology really about God and who he is and his character, his attributes. And um, in the course of doing that, I planned on teaching on the doctrine of the church. And, but uh, this, I sort of planned my preaching to be so that our meeting dealing with the subject of the Lord's church would come up when Brother Locke was here. So it just kind of came together and it really worked good. And he thoroughly covered that subject of the Lord's churches and if you missed any of those, I hope you'll listen to them online or watch them online. Um, but I just want to give a, a concluding message tonight to that uh, subject about the Lord's churches, talking about the preservation of churches. Now, just as a way of introduction, uh, Jesus promised that his churches, his, the church that he established in Jerusalem, which continued to establish uh, congregations uh, throughout Judea and Samaria and, and um, Galilee and then points beyond, Jesus promised th that his church would be perpetuated. We, when we talk about the perpetuity of the church, that means that there will always be throughout time sound Baptist churches. Now some people take that to an extreme and I've been challenged on that before because people think you're saying, people think you're implying by that that you can trace the heritage of your church all the way back to the time of Christ. And um, that's not, that's seldom true, if ever true. But believing in church perpetuity doesn't mean that you can trace the heritage from one church to another church to another church to another church to get here. Believing in per church perpetuity is believing what Jesus said, that there would always be sound churches. And so there always have, in every generation, in every era of time, there have always been sound churches. And even though you may not be able to put your finger on the time and place and the name, we know they're there, they existed, because Jesus said they would. Now, having said that, um, he did not say that every church that's established, and this is getting to the point of the message, he did not say that every church that is a true New Testament church will always be in existence because we know that that's not true. Matter of fact, every church, virtually every church of the New Testament era, you cannot find any trace of those churches now. And so, so to me, it's one thing to understand the doctrine of the the Bible doctrine of the New Testament church, the ecclesia, but it's another thing to think about what causes churches to fail, what causes churches to decline or die, and what causes churches to live longer. And you know, last Sunday was we celebrated our church, our church's anniversary over 100 years since this church was established. 
And uh, we thank the Lord for that. But there's no guarantee in the scripture, there's no guarantee in the scripture that this church will be around 20 years from now or 30 years from now or 50 years from now. It just doesn't, the scripture does not guarantee that. So what can we learn from the Bible out about churches being preserved, the preservation of churches and keeping churches alive and strong? And that's what we're going to look at tonight, just in this one simple message. And I hope you'll stay with us, stay attentive. And we're going to use the church at Ephesus as our pattern, as our example to learn from. And if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of our text tonight. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 and into the angel of the church at Ephesus brother Sites called me today and he normally calls me and says my shepherd and he says I guess I should change that to my angel <laughs> to the angel the angel angelos is the messenger and the messenger of the church is the pastor the one that God gives was given, addressing here. The angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things, now Jesus is giving this message to the church at Ephesus through the angel. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the seven messengers and the seven churches, seven, the seven candle, golden candlesticks are seven literal churches. This is the message in verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them with the, which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not and hast found them liars. And hast borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless... I have somewhat against thee, he says to the church at Ephesus, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast. He goes back to more positive note, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You may be seated. So we're going to begin tonight by talking about this local congregation, the church at Ephesus. And I want to be, I just want to look first of all at its past. And I'm not going to dig in too deep here. And I hope you know enough about your Bible to be able to relate to these things. But this church existed. The church that John the Beloved is, is, is writing as he is uh, being instructed by the Lord. And he is, we know where John was at the time of this revelation. He was on the Isle of Patmos. He was there because he was being exiled as a form of persecution. And he is writing, the Lord's instructing him to write seven congregations. Those seven congregations were literal churches in Asia. And John would have been familiar with those ministries. So he's, he's, he's writing about a church that he knew about. We actually have, this is a, a great treasure when you think about it. We have the record in the book of Acts of the establishment of the church there at Ephesus. Paul spent two years there, had a tremendous, a tremendous beginning, and it was a good church, an outstanding church, a noteworthy church by many standards. Matter of fact, we're not going to turn to it, but in Acts chapter 19, I believe it is, it says that during those two years that Paul was in Ephesus that the word of God spread throughout all of Asia. All of Asia heard the word of God because of the witness of this one church. It was a great church. At one time, Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, Timothy pastored the church at Ephesus. We, we learned that in the epistles of Timothy. Now that was their past. And it was a wonderful past. It was a noteworthy past. It was a glorious past, but you can't live in the past. Then we think about 
what, Paul, what was going on when John wrote this. A few years have gone by, but not even near a hundred years have taken, taken place or passed by. And Revelation 2 gives us a little, a little snapshot, like an updated condi uh, condition of the church at Ephesus. And we already read this, and we're not going to really spend much time on it, but verse 2, they were commended for their works, for their service. Look there, he says, I know thy works. By the way, who, who knows this? Jesus does. He's the one that's given this inventory. He's the one that's giving this uh, evaluation. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, endurance, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. This was a church that was serving, a church that was uh, putting forth a lot of effort, a, a church that took a stand for right, could not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them, which say they're apostles. They actually took these people to task who claimed to be apostles but were not and found them to be liars. I mean, this is what this church is about. And uh, it says in verse 3, For my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Good things, good qualities, exemplary in many ways. But then you come to verse 4. Nevertheless, it's like you go in to see your boss and he says, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you being on time every day. I appreciate your hard work. I appreciate your good attitude, but... So that's what this is. Nevertheless, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now if you just think about that momentarily. For Jesus to say, I have somewhat against thee. That should bear some weight, right? I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. So he's telling them here they need to change some things. He's telling this church, you're doing a good job in many ways, but this has got to change. This has got to change. In verse 5, he gives them their instructions. Remember, therefore, I have that word underlined in my Bible, remember. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. He says, if you'll think back, church, if you'll think back, you can remember that things have slipped over time. Now, folks, y'all need to really stay focused. It's amazing what little it takes to distract people. Remember from whence thou art fallen and repent. I don't want you to just remember. I want you to change your attitude about it. I want you to change your direction about it. Remember, therefore, and repent and do the first works. So that's what I want you to do. You're doing a good job. I commend you for it. I recognize that I'm fully aware of what you're doing but there's something that's got to change. There's something that has to change. And then he says this in verse 5. Two words that just really are powerful. Or else. Or else what? He says, if you don't, if you don't fix what I'm talking to you about, there are going to be consequences. Or else, I will come unto thee quickly he says to this church and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent now this church was letting some things slip and specifically he says you've left your first love now you've heard many sermons about this I'm sure or at least heard it referenced in other sermons but He's not saying you're not doing enough. He's not saying you're not working enough. He's not, he's not saying you're not serving enough. But he says you, you've left your first love. You're not loving me the way you once did. There was something slipping in their devotion. Not in their service, not in their activity, but in their devotion. Now, sometimes I do this when I'm reading one of the epistles. This is not an epistle to the church at Ephesus. We do have that in our Bible, but this is a personal letter, instruction, if you would, to the church at Ephesus. And I imagine what it would be like to be sitting there in the congregation, like you're sitting here tonight, like I'm standing here tonight, if we got a message from God, and I, I wonder what it would be like. Not just a general message to everybody, but a specific message 
to Mount Zion Baptist Church. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? I mean, I think we ought to, if we believe that's true, then I think we'd want to take it very seriously. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking that probably there were people in this church that were not aware that their lack of devotion was even noticed or noteworthy. They were probably surprised that Jesus would make such an issue out of this. I'm just imagining that. And maybe even after they heard it, they didn't think it was all that important. I mean, it's really not that important. Or they might have said, someone might have been sitting there saying, you know, I really I agree that I'm not really where I need to be spiritually, but everybody else seems to be doing good, so I think we're okay. People could receive this in all kinds of different ways. We don't know the details of that. But this was a good church by most standards. But what Jesus took issue with was important to him. So that we've looked at their past. They have a really a glorious past. We've looked at their present, doing good, serving, acting the way God would have them to act, involved in ministry. But then we're going to look at their future. You know, we're going to look at what we know about their future. Now, here's what we know in Revelation chapter 2. Their future was undetermined at this time. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? how they're going to be in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. But Jesus gave them, it seems, maybe this is not the correct word, but it's a word that comes to my mind. Jesus gave them an ultimatum. He said, I want you to remember where you used to be. And I want you to repent. And I want you to do the first works. There was nothing in this, there was nothing in this about, I just want you to keep, Keep doing what you're doing. Loving me the way you're letting That's not in there. He said, I want you to change in your devotion. I want you to get back to where you once were. Now, when we think about their future, if, if we were sitting here in the first century and we're getting this message, but, but these messages, by the way, were sent to all seven of these churches. So if we get this message and we're reading this message, the question is, about our future, what are we going to do with this information? What are we going to do with what we're being instructed to do? What are we, and what are we going to do with this opportunity? Jesus said, Jesus said, I love what you're doing in many respects, but I insist that you change this. And if you don't change this, then there are going to be some serious consequences. Now, whose responsibility was that? To change was it the pastor's responsibility to change perhaps but it wasn't his sole responsibility was it just a select few members of the congregation I think it was for every member of that church right it was a it was for every one of them to take personally to look at themselves it's a reminder that when we come to the Word of God and particularly when we come to church and we open up the Word of God and the Bible's being preached and it's not the opinions of men, it's taken right from the Word of God that we ought to take that personally. We ought to examine ourselves. Now what if they did not repent? We would like to think they're going to repent, right? I would like to think they're going to repent. I would like to think on that very day that the members of the church at Ephesus with a broken heart over the fact that they have displeased God, that, they've, that God is not happy with her, that God has taken issue, I would like to think they'd come to a place of genuine repentance and turn to God with all their heart. But we don't know exactly what they did. But I know what would happen if they didn't, right? We know what will happen. Jesus said it happened quickly. I think it's an interesting word in verse 5. I will come unto thee quickly. I'm not going to drag my feet. I'm not going to wait around for decades. I'm not going to dilly-dally around about this. If you don't get this right, I'm going to come unto you quickly. And look in verse 5 because this is such an important concept. And will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Now... We know what the candlestick is. If you're still looking in Revelation, I hope you are in chapter 2. But look in verse 1. We'll look at a few verses. Verse 11, Revelation 1, 11, Jesus appears to John and 
And he says to him, What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And he lists these seven congregations. Verse 12 says, And I turned to see the voice that spake unto me. John heard this voice speaking. He twisted, he turned in the direction of the voice. And being turned, he said, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Verse 11, we see there's seven churches. Verse 12, John saw seven candlesticks. In verse 13, it says, in the midst of those uh, of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, talking about Jesus walking among the candlesticks. If you look in verse 20, John gives us a simple, clear explanation of what he had seen. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So what does it mean when he says, I'm going to remove, if the candlestick is a church, right? The candlesticks are churches. If, if Jesus said, if you don't get this right, I'm going to remove the candlestick, then what does that mean? And there is some disagreement about it, but to me there's no, there's, there's, it's such an obvious thing. What he says is, I'm going to remove the church. I'm going to remove the church from this place. I'm going to remove your candlestick. You'll no longer be a church. By the way, it's possible that the church at Ephesus disobeyed the Lord and that he removed the candlestick, but they could have continued to meet and congregate. It just wasn't a true church. It wasn't a sound church. It wasn't a New Testament church because if Jesus is not there and it's not, he's not the head of it and he's not the primary presence there, it's not really a candlestick. It's just a social gathering. Verse, verse 7 of chapter 2 it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We ought to take this seriously. Now, I'm sure you know this, but in case you might not know it, if you were to go to Ephesus today, there is no New Testament church there. There's no, there's no evidence that this church ever existed. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to the seven churches, none of them exist today. So the subject tonight is not the perpetuity of the Lord's church that he promised. It's the preservation of churches that exist. Do you see what I'm saying tonight? Can you, can you follow what I'm saying? This was a key. This was a plan. God gave Ephesus a plan for keeping the church alive. But he said, if you don't do this, I'm going to remove the candlestick. Churches, like everything else, are naturally prone to decline. There are, many, there are many examples of this in life. Take your human body, for instance. I found at 66 years old that I'm getting stronger by the day. Right? No, not exactly. Aging brings weakness. Aging brings feebleness. Aging does not bring strength. They say that the average man at the age of 30 begins to lose every year 3 to 5% of muscle mass. Now that's not true of me, but that's true of many people. I'm not a have you ever been in a position, I've, I've had two surgeries on my shoulders where I could not use my shoulders for months. And if you don't use muscles, atrophy causes a loss of muscle mass. What I'm saying is things just naturally tend to decline. They don't naturally tend, this, buildings are that way. This building is that way. The house where you live, you may have noticed after years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, things start to break. It's true of equipment. It's true of vehicles. It's true of appliances, washers and dryers, refrigerators. It's true of weed eaters and lawnmowers. It's true of nations. Our nation is experiencing this. We're a young nation. 
by any standard, and yet we're watching our nation as it's weakened and crumbled over the period of time. Relationships are the same way. Marriages don't just naturally improve and get better through the years. And it's the same thing of your personal spirituality. You don't just naturally, automatically get closer to God and have a closer walk with God without effort, without discipline. It just doesn't happen. And so none of these examples and many other examples we could use, they don't get stronger through time. They have to be maintained. You have to work on them. And that's part of what he was saying to the church at Ephesus. You're going to have to work on this. If you don't work on this, there are going to be some serious problems. Churches can become weak. Good churches, sound churches, New Testament churches can become weak and unhealthy. Ephesus, Ephesus, this great church, is having serious issues that Jesus had to address. Most of you know, or many of you know, I, last year I was asked to speak several times in a Baptist history tour that concentrated on this area, Missouri, Illinois, uh, Iowa, Kansas. We visited sites of some of the first churches established in these states, these first churches established west of the Mississippi. And it was, a, it was an interesting tour. But most of those congregations, their buildings may be there or a monument may be there, but most of those congregations do not exist. And we visited some of the longest active serving churches. I preached in a church once at a similar conference where there was a congregation there, a church there that had been in existence for 200 years. It's amazing, isn't it? But many of them are gone. And it wasn't that they were not true New Testament churches. Ministries have to be maintained. Churches that were once vibrant can become stagnant. And if, and if a person was, if I was sitting here tonight listening to this message, I would hope that I'd think like this. This is how I'd hope I'd think. Man, that is so right and so true. And I want to do my part as a member of this church to see to it that this church maintains its strength in days to come. Some people don't think like that. Some people come in, park themselves, listen to a sermon. If it's not something they think that they need today, they kind of dismiss it, go out the door and hope it'll be more relevant next week. But I, that, I think we ought to think, as grown-up Christians, we ought to think differently than that. This church was established over 100 years ago, Mount Zion Baptist Church. That's almost half of the age of America, to kind of put that in perspective. And over the course of our history, there have been times when the church was stronger and times when the church has been weaker. I've read through records when there were times that if it was not for women in the church, the church would not have existed because there were no men or maybe only one or two men that were even faithful to the congregation. That's a shame, isn't it? I thank God for those women and the few men that were there. I'm talking about preserving churches. Preserving churches for future generations. The Cambridge Dictionary gives this definition of preservation. Think about this definition. The act of keeping something the same or of preventing it from being damaged. Keeping the church keeping it strong, keep, keep on guard that it's not damaged. And you can think of that definition clearly as it applies to church. As a matter of fact, in the Cambridge Dictionary, when I was looking at this, it gave an example of how this work, word preservation is used. Listen to this example. In the Cambridge Dictionary, it says, the church is in a poor state of preservation. In other words, the church is not being careful about preserving itself. Preserving would mean... So here's some synonyms, to protect, to maintain, to keep alive, to continue. You ever wonder, I wondered this, I've wondered this numerous times and I wondered it a lot when I was preparing this message. How long does the average Baptist church exist? And for all of you fans of Google, and I am one, I've got some sad news. 
Google does not know the answer to that question. You say, I thought Google knew everything. Not that. I know personally many churches that no longer exist, that once existed in our lifetime. I know of those who've closed their doors in the last year. Think about a church closing its doors, turning the lights out, turning the electric off, closing the doors, and saying we're out of business. To me, that's a very sad thing, especially if it was once a sound church, a Bible-preaching church, a strong church. And of those who are remaining, it's safe to say, not being critical, I think it's being, just being factual, that a sizable percentage of them are probably no longer sound in doctrine. We, ought to be, we as church members, and again, we're, we're, we're looking at the fact that we just celebrated a church anniversary, we just had an emphasis on the doctrine of the church and what the Bible teaches about it. But it's our duty, it's our responsibility to work at keeping churches strong and preserving churches or correcting the things that causes church to decline. That's what, that's what the message of, that Ephesus was. You need to fix some stuff. And by the way, if you look at this, and I'm not even going to take the time tonight to look through this, but if you look at these other churches, the church at Pergamos, for instance, they had serious doctrinal issues. So Jesus didn't say the same thing to every church. He said to Ephesus, you're doing a good job, but I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. He didn't say the same thing to Thyatira and to Pergamos and Philadelphia and Laodicea. He's, he addressed the specific weaknesses in all these congregations. And really, if you're looking for something that would be, for you personally, a good uh, personal Bible study, just look at those seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, and notice the specific things that Jesus took issue with. Thyatira had a problem with separation. It's clear in the passage they had a problem with uh, not dealing with immorality. Laodicea, most everyone here, if you had the time to think about it, and I didn't put you on the spot, you could, you could remember what the prob main problem he had with Laodicea was. Anybody want to guess at what it was? They were lukewarm. Remember he says... You know, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And he says, you say I'm rich and increased with goods. This is what the church, the church members, the congregation at Laodicea, they felt really good about where they were. You say they were rich and increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that they are poor and naked and blind. They were lukewarm. So what is the solution? If you and I were to take a blank piece of paper today and write down what is the solution if I as a member of a New Testament church am I going to contribute to the preservation of our church what is the solution and I want to first briefly give you some things that are not the solution just changing our methods and our ministries especially if we're doing it to try to attract lost people that's not really a biblical solution to say we're going to have just we're going to have shorter, more relaxed services, less emphasis on the Bible. The Bible kind of offends people. We're going to give them more of what they like and less of what they need. That's not really a good plan. Seeking to be a like a seeker-friendly, culturally accepting or appealing. Those are really. Even aesthetics. I mean, I think it's nice to have a nice facility. I think it's nice to have the grounds. I think the grass should be mowed and the, you know, the things should be trimmed. I think the building should look good. Those things matter, but those things don't produce life. I want to tell you what's where, where the Bible leads us to this place. The Bible leads us to this place that if we're going to have a maintenance program like we maintain our cars we change the oil once every four or five years whether it needs it or not <laughs> we we want a maintenance program for our church i'm going to taken from this text i'm just going to give these to you taking the church at ephesus as an example we have to maintain our devotion to god they left their first love 
You know, I've heard personally from people, people in our church, people in other churches, and pastors kind of lamenting this fact that during this COVID time when people have gotten out of the routine of being in church and singing together and studying together and hearing the preaching in person, that their devotional life, their spiritual devotion has kind of taken a hit. We have to maintain devotion. And it's more, that's more than just reading the Bible, but reading the Bible is a part of it. But more importantly, it's reading the Bible and letting the Bible read us. Letting the Bible change us. Our devotion is seen in our time in the Word. It's seen in our worship. It's seen in our faithfulness to God. Ephesus was letting this slip. You know, if, if you were to think with me for a moment about the short little book of Job, um, excuse me, Jude, one chapter, the whole chapter basically devoted to what to do in times of apostasy. If you're living in a culture when people are getting away from God, what should you do? And one of the things that Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. No matter what happens around you, don't stop loving God. That's what Ephesus was struggling with. We need to maintain devotion. Even Jesus, when he was teaching about his coming, and he spoke about the conditions that would be taking place in the world when Jesus would return. He said this, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. All these say the same things. Keep your devotional life what it should be. If, if every member of every true church would just stay in love with Jesus and stay in the word of God, and worship God sincerely and put God and love put loving God before everything and anything in your life. I'm telling you, it'll help the church stay strong. There's a second thing found in these letters, and that's not only maintaining devotion, but maintaining purity. Brother Locke, this week, in his teaching, one night, I can't remember what night it was, but he dealt with the matter of church discipline. Something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be taught, something that needs to be practiced. And if you were, we don't have the time tonight, we're not going to do this, but if you were to take these churches of Revelation, they had issues with moral purity and doctrinal purity. I mean, doctrine, you know, I'm, you know how I feel about this. I get so weary of people acting like doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine matters. It matters to God. And it ought to matter to us. Far too many people look for, all they're looking for is Bible lessons and Bible music that makes them feel good. Listen, I'm for having a good feeling, but we're not in this for the feeling. We're in this to be, to be obedient to God and to be what God would have us to be. There ought to be moral purity and doctrinal purity. Holiness and separation is a part of that. This is what helps churches stay strong. I don't believe, I don't believe there's any way that there'll be another hundred years before Jesus comes back. I'm not dating anything. I just don't think it's going to happen. But I'm telling you what a miracle would be is if a hundred years later, this church is still existing, standing strong on the word of God, Supporting missionaries, loving people. That would be a miracle. You say, why would it be such a miracle? Because you don't find it hardly anywhere in the world. It just doesn't exist. Most churches go into decline and die. This is how you can help. This is how I can help. Maintaining devotions, maintaining purity, and thirdly and finally, maintaining zeal. That, I go back to that Laodicea in church. They were not hot. They weren't cold. They weren't cold means they weren't anti-God. They weren't anti-Christ. But they weren't on fire either. They were just sort of lukewarm. They were just sort of passive and not passionate. That, that phrase that describes them, have need of nothing, is sort of a sense of satisfaction. We're okay. We're okay. Not really seeing many people get saved, but we're okay losing children to the world, but we're okay. I'm telling you, that's not a good place to be. 
That's a lack of zeal, a lack of passion. There ought to be a... So, so third thing we can maintain devotion, maintain purity, and maintain zeal. Again, the natural, the natural inclination, I can, if you've never experienced this, just take my word for it, is the natural inclination is to become comfortable and lazy spiritually. If you know someone that has been saved for 40 or 50 years and they just seem like they're really on fire for God, you're looking at a novelty. Because most people, and I'm not being negative, I'm being realistic, most people are fired up when they first get saved. They may get fired up occasionally along the way. But generally, they just quit serving like they once did, quit praying like they once did, quit reaching out to lost people the way they once did, and they just get comfortable. And I tell you, we need to maintain our zeal. The, more, the older I get, the more I personally have to deal with this tendency to relax. And if you're a young person, you have to deal with it, You've got your work cut out for you. So these things, these things are important to maintain and preserve church. This is not just a lecture based on opinion. This is a message based on the word of God. So ask yourself, if, it, if, devotion, if devotion and moral and doctrinal purity and zeal are things that Jesus said would jeopardize our future, Ask yourself, are those things present in my life? If he was investigating or evaluating, doing an inventory for our church, are those things, are these things present in life? Ask yourself as a parent, are these things present in the life of our children? About six years ago, a man wrote a book. This was the title of the book. It sounds kind of morbid, but it applies. Autopsy of a Dead Church. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've read it. Now we know what the purpose of an autopsy is. It's a medical procedure to determine the cause of death, right? They're not sure we're going to do an autopsy. Well really when you look at these seven churches, you're looking at churches that died. And... If you want to do an autopsy, I think the place to begin would be with the things that Jesus said. If you don't fix this, we've got some serious issues. So if you look at the cause of death, it would not be COVID. <laughs> it might be lukewarmness. It might be doctrinal impurity. It might be a lack of love for Jesus. Like I said, when Jesus wrote this, these churches, were less than 50 years old probably, and they're already having some serious issues in them. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it like that? What about a church now that's 50 years old or 100 years old? All the more reason to be concerned about it. I was, um, I asked the, Sound men, we sprung a couple of things on them last minute tonight, but we'll give them a raise if it works. But I was thinking, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about the, the place we met as a church before we met in the gym. And of course, the, before we met in the gym, we met in the Murray School, the elementary school. But before we met in the elementary school, we met in that building right over there that no longer exists. And I remember something about going into that auditorium. On one wall, there was a church covenant. How many of y'all have ever been in a church that posted the church covenant? Any of you? Some of you have? And, to, and I was thinking about this because that church covenant... We don't really emphasize it like we once did, but I think it's worth really looking at and saying maybe we should be reminded about that every once in a while. But it was like a visible reminder of the importance of our individual lives. And so I got a, an example of that church covenant that I want us to just look at uh, tonight and see if this works. 
And I just want to read it, but I want you to look at it. I want you to think about the words. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body of Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness, to give it a place in our affections, prayers and services above every organization of human origin. In other words, we'll put it before any other human organization. To sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline and doctrine. To contribute cheerfully and regularly as God has prospered us toward its expenses and for the support of a faithful and evangelical ministry among us. The relief of the poor and the spread of the gospel, I think. In case, it's close enough. That's okay. In case of difference of opinion in the church, we will strive to avoid a contentious spirit. And if we cannot unanimously agree, we will cheerfully recognize the right of the majority to govern. In other words, we're not going to cause problems. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotion, to study diligently the Word of God, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintance, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be kind and just to those in our employ, and faithful in the service we promise others, keep our word, endeavoring in the purity of heart and goodwill towards all men to exemplify and commend our holy faith. We further engage to watch over, to pray for, to exhort and stir up each other under every good word and work, to guard each other's reputation, not needlessly exposing the infirmities of others, to participate in each other's joys and with tender sympathy bear one another's burdens and sorrows, to cultivate Christian courtesy, to be slow to give or take offense, but always ready for reconciliation, being mindful of the rules of the Savior in the 18th chapter of Matthew, to secure it without delay and through life and evil report and good report to seek to live to the glory of God who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we remove from this place, we engage as soon as possible to unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Thank you, gentlemen. Isn't that good? That's what church is about. That's what church membership is about. That's what their privileges of membership, but there's responsibilities of membership. So, all of this, to summarize, underscores the necessity of ongoing revival. Corporate revival, spiritual revival. He called these churches to repent, to turn to God. You know, there's no substitute for the work of God in his churches. We see, we see Jesus in this, these verses walking among the candlesticks. And we can't see his physical presence here, but he's with us. He's with us. I think one of the things that hurts churches' ongoing ministry, just carelessness. Just not taking things seriously. And there's no revival without repentance. 
turning to God, saying, God, it's like we used to sing this little chorus. I don't hardly ever get sung anymore. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not other people. It's, it's me that's standing in the need of prayer. Personal revival. I can't bring revival to your life. You can't bring revival to my life. I'm responsible for my spiritual condition, not as a pastor alone, but as a church member. And that's the responsibility of every believer, every church member. So I, I'm so, you know this about me, I love the doctrine of the church. The sound doctrine of the New Testament church, the body of Christ. I love the doctrine of it. But realistically, Churches don't continue just because they started right or because they've had God's hand of blessing on them. They continue because the church members continue to be committed to the word of God and committed to one another and committed to reaching the community and doing the things that Jesus has called us to do. Amen? So, take that Addendum and add it to all the wealth of messages that we had this last week about the Lord's church. It's together for prayer. With our heads bowed today, this evening, you know, the Lord instructed John to write to each of these churches to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Would you tonight just look at your own life as I look at mine? I mean, what if every, think about this. Now, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Think about this. Could you for just a moment? What if every member of the church was if their commitment, their devotion, their prayer life, their zeal, their purity, what if every member of the church's life was just like mine? Would it be a stronger church or a weaker church? And I think that's a question worth asking because it doesn't rest on any one person's shoulders, but it rests on all of our shoulders. And I thank God for our church. And right where you sit tonight, would you just say, Lord, I want to I wanna take this to heart. Maybe you need to listen to the sermon a second time. I want to take this to heart. Take it seriously. <laughs>